Turn with me to the scripture. It comes in Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 18. Also printed in your bulletins on page 8. Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 18. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you, were, where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hemron where he built an altar to the Lord. And this is God's word. We've been saying that the Bible is not just a collection of individual stories that teach us morals on how to live a good life, but it's a single story. Creation, fall, redemption. And we've been looking at the book of Genesis, particularly this new series, The Life of Abraham. One of the single most important characters in the Bible. For instance, if the three major world religions today all consider Abraham as a father of their faith, then we need to know the story of Abraham. Why study him? Why study Abraham? Abraham teaches us what it means to be a Christian. What's a Christian? A Christian is somebody who lives on the basis of a call. Think about it. Who was Abraham? He was called out of his social context, out of his economic context, out of his religious context, out of his cultural context, God appeared to him, and he promised Abraham that the entire world, this broken world, would be redeemed through one of his own descendants, one of his sons. And so God called Abraham to go to Canaan and wait there. He just called him to go and wait, and there he would be blessed. A Christian lives on the basis of the call. It's what makes Christians distinct. It's what makes Christians unique. It's what makes them stand out. Oftentimes, it's what makes them unpredictable. And this is what's absolutely remarkable about Abram. 
because the call, the concept of the call in phrasing comes up consistently 12 times between chapters 12 and 25. Now, we're going to emphasize different parts throughout those 12 or 13 chapters, but the call comes up consistently through and through. In this particular passage, we have three ambitious men. Very simple sermon. Three ambitious men. Three points. The first ambitious man, the second ambitious man, and the third ambitious man. First, we have the first ambitious man, verses 5 to 11. This is Lot. I'm just going to read verse 5 here. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and a herdsman of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. Lot was moving along with Abram. You know, over the course of time, Abram was called out of his homeland, his hometown, and Lot moved with him. Lot was his nephew. And they both grew wealthy. That's basically what happened. Abram got rich. Lot also grew very rich. But verse 6, the land couldn't support them anymore. And verse 7, the quarreling started to arise. Now, Lot was Abram's nephew. And when nomadic people get wealthy, what happens is they don't grow uh, because their bank accounts grow. What happens is their livestock their crops, the land starts to grow and produce. And what that means is as their livestock grows, you need more tents, and as you need more tents, then you have more people because the people to watch over the livestock, you have more hired men. And as a result, both parties, Lot's and Abram's families, their herdsmen, their hired men, their tents, their land, their livestock are growing. It's expanding. Their financial portfolios consistently, constantly expanding. But it got to a point where it was starting to max out. Abram had realized at this point that their financial portfolio was, not, was pretty much maxed out as long as the two were going to stay together, as long as the two were going to move together. And uh, the positions that they were holding, either one or the other or both had to move. And so he tells Lot in verses 8 to 9, Lot, you can either go left or right. If you go left, I'm going to go right. If you go right, I'm going to go left. Now, the land that God called Abram to live on, it was literally uh, saturated with their productivity. And if you go where they were, right between Bethel and Ai, where it says verses 1 to 4, they were between the lands of Bethel and Ai. Abram had pitched his tent there. That's where he settled. And that's where the altar was. And he called on the name of the Lord. That's what it says, verses 1 to 4. If you actually go there, about 20 miles down near near the Dead Sea, there's an area that's fertile and green and watered. It's a plain. It's, it, it was actually irrigated at the time. It says here, Lot looked up. He looked up. He raised his eyes. And he saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered. He says, that's where I'm going to go. It was the one place in the entire area that they could see where Lot could significantly continue to expand his financial portfolio. And so uh, we see verses uh, 15 and on, he moves just outside of Sodom. He moves down to that area. And the next chapter, he actually moves into Sodom. He's just absolutely captivated by this land. Ambitious man. Money. Financial growth. Definitely more important than his relationship with Abram. More important than God's call for him to stay in Canaan, to stay where he is. And God tells Abram, you know, I want you to abandon the richer, the fertile, the fuller life, the worldly life uh, out there beyond Canaan. I want you to stay in Canaan. 
where it's arid, where it's dry where they were, I want you to wait for the promise. Lots of members of his family. He loves his uncle, but he says, you know what? This is business. I need to move on. Financial growth, getting ahead, become greater than God's promise. And as a result, Lot's personality changes. Temperament starts to, his temper starts to, his temperament changes, and quarreling starts to arise. And what he's saying here is this land is dry. The prospects are running dry. It's making him angry. It's making him flare up. And as a result, you know, his relationship with Abram is starting to become threatened. Now, is it wrong to make money in and of itself? Of course not. It's not wrong to make money. But there's more going on here. And that's what this text is trying to show us. Robert Alter, currently a professor at University of California in Berkeley, formerly uh, one of the uh, head professors out in uh, Brandeis University. Um, He actually is the foremost authority uh, of Hebrew literature. And he interprets verse 10. According to Robert Alter, it says, Lot, when he looked up, he raised up his eyes. And that phrase there, that passage, that verse is not... The narrator is not saying or interpreting what Lot is objectively seeing through his eyes. But he sees the plane in hyperbolic terms. What he's saying is that this was the narrator looking at Lot and interpreting his heart. This is his heart's interpretation of what Lot was actually seeing. It's an amazing thing. He saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered, great for raising flocks, like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of the Lord, presumably the garden of Eden. This was not just something that was written out of poetry. This is narrative. The garden of the Lord was the garden of Eden. And when Lot raised up his eyes and saw what he saw, something spiritual was going on. This is what the narrator is saying. When Lot lifted up his eyes, he saw more than a way to just sustain himself. He saw more than a way than just to get rich, just to expand a little bit. The garden wasn't just a a fertile land. It wasn't just a a nice plain. It was a place of ultimate riches. If you know anything about the Garden of Eden, it's a place where man walked in union with God, and as man walked in union with God, he was not broken. The land wasn't broken. There was no curse. It was a place of ultimate security, ultimate comfort, ultimate richness, ultimate relationship. And here Lot was thinking, If I go there, then I would have arrived. This is paradise. That's what he saw. That's what he saw. He saw paradise. Life is now going to make sense because I would have arrived. And all this abandoning of my home and my culture and my religion, all these contexts that I've abandoned, this would make it worth it. Remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Many of you don't remember the movie Chariots of Fire because it came out in the early 80s. Harold Abrams, true story, Harold Abrams, gold medalist in the Olympics. He wants to win the 100-yard dash. And what's the reason why he's working so hard? It's printed in your bulletin, first page. He says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's the reason why I need to win this race. That's the reason why I need to win the gold medal. When we say the main thing I want is to do well financially or to have a good family, or to have influence in society, or befriend people who are known, the movers and shakers in my community, or to meet Mr. and Mr. Wright, Mr. and Mrs. Wright, or be successful in my career. It's actually not true. That's not the main thing. We always want more. Because what we're looking for is something like the Garden of the Lord, the Garden of Eden, 
Our spiritual DNA is longing because we've been, we've been dissociated from the garden. From that point on, our, our spiritual DNA longs to return back to the garden again. We always want more. We don't know where we are. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're made for. We don't know what our worth is. We have this deep insecurity. The Bible says we have a deep-rooted inadequacy. And so these pursuits, all these pursuits, we're trying to find the answers to these pursuits. So when a person says, my heart's desire is to find someone who's going to love me, who's going to marry me, we're not just looking for love and relationships. Not according to Robert Alter. What we're saying is, then I know I'm going to have worth. Then I know I've made it. That's what's implied in this text. The Bible tells us that the reason for our desperation, you may say, you know, well, I'm a modern woman. I'm a modern American woman. I don't need men in my life. I have a career then you'll be desperate for that career. If you say, you know, I'm too busy for women in my life because I have a job, I have a career, this is my time, then you'll be desperate for that. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord. With the Lord, we had value. We knew we had value. We knew our worth because we were walking with God, but we lost that. And as a result, we're constantly trying to get back into the Garden again, on our own, without God. And as a result, there's an inner emptiness We're working so that the inner emptiness will be gone. So there's more going on than financial growth here. There's more going on than prosperity for Lot. There's more going on than a desire for career success here. Lot has set his heart on his riches, on his wealth to save him. If I would only have this, then I will be complete. And it doesn't fail. It fails him. Chapters 14 through 18, you know, through 19, you know, when he leaves... He enters into Sodom, and ultimately what happens is complete ruin, complete brokenness. So when you say, now I have the garden, what you're doing is you're putting an eternal expectation on a very finite thing. It's going to fail you. Lot is ambitious. He's driven. He's literally willing to trample over Abram's herdsmen. That's the quarreling. That's the meaning of the quarreling. And, and he's, looking at spiritual, you know, he's looking spiritually at success. He's looking spiritually at money because that's his garden. That's, that's his measure of worth. And it tells, this passage tells us that, you know, we all want, what we all want to do with that one thing in our lives, you know, we're doing it because we're alienated from the garden. We want the garden of the Lord. But Lot here, do you see what's going on? He wants the garden of the Lord, but he wants it without the Lord. By leaving Canaan, he's walking away from the Lord. That's the problem. It's called blind ambition. He's looking for contentment. He's looking for success. But the thing is, he's looking for contentment and success without true contentment and success. It's going to fail him. It's going to make him dissatisfied. That's the first ambitious man. The second ambitious man is Abram. We're looking at the ambition of Abram. He's a little different than Lot. He's very different than Lot. What Abram does here, it seems very logical, seems very sensible, but it's actually not. Abram lived in a patriarchal society where age, generation, seniority, these are the things, these are the things that are, are above all other things. Culturally, he's in a place, he comes from a place where your seniority is everything. And so he, and he was the head of this large nomadic tribe. But look what is going on here. He gives Lot the choice. He tells Lot to choose first where he's going to go. He knows where Lot's going to choose. He tells Lot to choose where he's going to go. Abram had three things, but he he couldn't keep all three things. 
He had his relationship to Lot. He had his relationship to God. He had his relationship to money. He realized at this point that he couldn't keep them all. So he has three choices. First choice, he can travel with Lot. They can go into Sodom. They can both grow wealthy. He would have his relationship with Lot. He would have his wealth, his relationship to his money, but he would abandon his relationship with God. God told him, stay if he leaves. Second option, he could have taken the first choice. It is his cultural right. I'm the senior here. I'm going to choose. I'm going to take the good land for myself. You can have the scraps. Eventually, Lot would become alienated. Lot would become embittered with Abram. And as a result, he would lose his relationship with Lot. He would lose his relationship with God because he would take the good land for himself. He would leave Canaan. Or he could do what he did. By giving Lot the choice, what he's saying is this. I'm going to keep my relationship with you. I'm going to keep my relationship with God. But I'm going to lose my relationship with my money. My financial portfolio has maxed out. Now I see a limit to my potential, my own worldly potential, my growth potential. And by doing this, what he's saying is, I'm putting God and my family above money. In other words, well, I'm going to interpret it in a slightly different way. I'm going to love the Lord with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength, and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. So what he does with himself and his own money, he places last, he places third. It's a wise choice. It's a wise choice. Why? Because there's a brief mention here in verse 7. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, they're the enemies. They're also living in that land. And so to have an alliance was important. It's important as they're growing not to be quarreling, to maintain allies. But what else do you see going on here? This is incredibly culturally subversive. Abram is thinking out of the box. He's thinking creatively. He's saying, you know what? By giving Lot the option, I can preserve everything that is valuable to me. He's, he's being free from cultural convention. Most of all, he's so resolved, he's not worried about his provision. He's not worried about his support. Where does he get this? Where does he get this confidence to do this? He's living life on the basis of a call. From Abram, we're going to learn two more things about the call. This ambitious man, we're going to learn two more things about the call. And I'm going to read briefly from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 to 10. It uh, kind of sets the, um, the context for this. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder was God. The essence of the call is we have to change what we're rooted in. We have to change our foundations. That's what it means to to live on the basis of a call. You have to change your spiritual foundation. Remember the movie Rocky? We all understand the movie Rocky because we're from Philadelphia. Rocky says, I don't even want to win the match. I don't need to win. I just want to go the distance. Why? Because then I will know that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. If I just go the distance, then I will know I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. 
We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're worth. We don't know where we're headed. We all have something we cannot face losing. And if we lose it, then we're going to lose ourselves. We're going to lose our worth. We're going to lose our identity. The call of God is to change your foundation. God says leave. Abandon these things. Make my righteousness your foundation. Make my approval your joy. Make my love your identity. Live on the basis of that and see what happens. Then and only then will you be truly free. That's what God is saying. Then and only then will you have an identity. Then and only then will you have true security, true comfort, true foundation, true joy. And you can live a big life. You can take big risks. You can live with a lot of loss. You can think very creatively when you live like that. That's one part of living on the basis of a call. The second thing we learn about the essence of a call, Abram, he shows how subtle it is to think that you've already changed your foundations and yet you haven't. There are many of us here who think, well, I did change my foundations. I'm living on the basis of my foundations. But in subtle ways, we actually have not. There's more evidence to show that we've not changed our foundations. The first part of this passage, this is an amazing part, first part of this passage, the narrator is showing you what Abraham is doing. Abram changes his name to Abraham later on, right? He, he's actually walking, and he's traveling from the Negev. He's in between Bethel and Ai. There he, he had already built an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. His tent was already pitched there. And there he returns to that. He settles there. He goes back to the altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. And, and my, one of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, says this is a pilgrimage of repentance for Abraham. Why? The last part of chapter 12, the last part of chapter 12, you see the, that exact tracing. He's actually at the Negev. He's going from Negev. He's in between Bethel and Ai. There he builds his altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. And ultimately what happens right after that, immediately a famine hits the land. A famine hits the land and Abraham immediately responds by leaving the land of Canaan. He goes and he ends up in Egypt. And there he gets into a lot of trouble. The Pharaoh in Egypt looks at Abram's wife and sees a beautiful woman and takes her in as a part of his harem. And Abram, he's planning, he's scheming, he realizes his life is on the line because if the Pharaoh realizes that this woman is his wife, he's going to be killed. So what does he do? He lies, calls her his sister. And as a result, Sarah is taken into a foreign man's life, taken into his harem. The trust relationship, that marital relationship is broken. It's devastated. It's ruined there. And with all the trouble that's taking place, God literally rescues Abram and Sarah out of Egypt. He realizes what has happened when he abandons the Lord. And as he, realizes, as he realizes that, what he's doing here now in chapter 13 is he's making his way back up to the Negev in between Bethel and Ai. What's going on here? In his cowardice, in his unfaithfulness, disaster happens. And now he's going back to the very spot. Ever, he's been rescued out of Egypt. Abram goes back to the very spot where he had made his mistake in the first place. He's literally retracing his steps up until the point where he actually abandons God, where he abandons the promise, to the very spot where he failed. It takes a tremendous amount. He's a coward in Egypt, but it takes, tremend- it takes a certain kind of person to be able to retrace your steps of failure and to call on the name of the Lord again. 
you have two passages buffeted by that phrase. And everything that's happening in between teaches you then what it really means to call on the name of the Lord. This is Abraham living out his repentance. What's he doing? The call of God is about the grace of God. On one hand, you change your spiritual foundations, but the call of God is about living in light of his grace, realizing that life is all about grace, changing your foundation. Martin Luther says that all of life, it's one of the first of his 95 theses to the Catholic Church, that all of life is repentance. All of life is about the grace of God. And you see the truth of how genuine your faith is. How do you do that? By looking at how you deal with failure in your life. How you deal with worldly failure. How you deal with spiritual failure in your life. How you deal with sin. It is possible to say that my foundation is no longer my career, no longer my family, no longer my relationships, but then you feel an overwhelming guilt when you sin. What's going on here? Your foundation is shifting. But you still placed your foundation now on your ability to live uh, sinlessly, on your ability to live a good life, on your ability to live honorably, and as a result, failure is destroying you. And you look around at other people who live well, and you envy them. And you look around at other people who don't live as well as you are currently living, and you despise them. Your life is starting to corrode. Failure is destroying your life. And if you can't deal with failure, then you still haven't made a foundational shift in your life. And if you're looking at people and you're constantly critical of how they live their life, or how we conduct our lives, or how we conduct our worship, you're still living your life, not having fully shifted. And if you're coming in, you're angry about things, and you're angry about church, and you're angry about your life, and you're angry about how other people in your family are living their lives, you still haven't made the foundational shift. Because you fail to live life basing it on the call, living your life on the basis of a call. Abram failed miserably. His relationship with his wife probably altered forever in some ways. But he retraces his steps. It takes a certain kind of courage to retrace your steps because he's able to rest in God's grace. Plunge your failure into the depth of the grace of God and he makes you great. He makes you great. This is why he's able to relinquish his wealth because he learned the first time a famine hit the land, he left. Devastation awaited. This time around, he looks around and he realizes that his financial portfolio is maxed out. And he's able to surrender that. He relinquishes his seniority. He's relinquishing his wealth. He's able to take on risk. He's able to take on financial risk, family risk, the Canaanites, the parasites are there. He's realizing that now as he's dispersing, there's tremendous risk all around him, and yet he's able to live a very big life. That's Abram. He's thinking out of the box. Decisions are being made without anxiety because of his failure, because of his repentance, because he's free. How does God do this? How can God do this to Abram? In verses 14 to 17, God takes Abram up to a high place. If you know anything about that area, there's a high place kind of like a mountain. He takes Abram up to that high place and he tells Abram, now I want you to raise your eyes. I want you to lift up your eyes. And uh, God takes Abram up to this high mountain and says, lift up your eyes. Lot lifted up his eyes and what did he see? He lifted it up by himself. He saw everything is gain. 
only, only to later on experience everything is loss. God takes Abram up to this high place. Abram looks around and sees everything is loss. God says, it will be your gain. You will have the promise. You will have descendants. Back in the ancient days, to have descendants was to increase your wealth because you had hired hands. You no longer needed hired hands. The more descendants you had, the more free labor you had, which meant more, the more productive you'd be. But it said in Hebrews chapter 11, as we read, Abram was not just looking at that. He was looking in faith to a city, another city whose architect and builder was God. In other words, God was saying, I'm going to give you descendants so much so that you can't count. But you may not see it here and now. Abram saw everything as loss. And through his worldly eyes, he saw loss. But he trusted it as gain. And that's why he stayed. Abram is a failure, but God says, I will give it to you. I'm going to give this land to you. He says later on, I'm going to make your offsprings countless. Walk the land. Walk the breadth of the land. In the ancient days, to walk the land, then to walk around the perimeter, because as you walked around the perimeter, that was your ownership. That's what you had. God says, I want you to walk as far as you can walk. It will all be yours. It will all be yours. Take ownership. Abram's a failure. Yet God says, you are rising again. Look to the grace of God. Look to my love. Look to my approval. Look to your relationship with me. How can we do that? How can you and I sitting here do that? We have to look to the third ambitious man. Centuries later, the real son of Abram, one of his descendants, is taken up to a high mountain, a high place. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. Jesus is taken up to a high place. And Satan says, all that you can see, I will give it to you. I will give it to you. Satan takes Jesus up to this high place. It was all Jesus's by right. But Satan says, I will give it to you. If you will just worship me, you can have it without sacrifice, without surrender. You can have it without giving up yourselves. You can have, you can have it without, without uh, becoming weak, without surrender, without cost. You can have it without ever going to the cross. I will just give it to you. Jesus says no. Jesus rejects it. Jesus denies it. He says, worship God. This is his response. Worship God, serve him only. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he loves his neighbor as himself because he's taken up to another high place on the cross. What does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, God, you are my everything. I am in union with you. And yet now at this very point, at this high place, as I look out, I've lost everything because I've lost you. I've lost the father. I've become fatherless. I am the one true son. And yet I've become fatherless. Why? For us, for you, for me. That's why he did this. Satan says, these things are yours by right. I can give it to you without suffering. And Jesus says, I'm going to have the suffering. I'm going to lose everything. Why? Because I can gain everything that I see in faith. Jesus lived life that we should have lived, that we could not live. Abram failed. And then Jesus died the death that we should die. He refused all the pleasures of the world. Jesus Abram let go of his wealth 
and he gave it to Lot. Jesus gave up the ultimate wealth. Abraham let go of some of his security. By Lot leaving him, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, his enemies are now lurking about. Jesus gave up ultimate security when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abram gave up his comfort by, giving, by, by uh, saying, Lot, you can take on the well-fertile land. Jesus gave up the ultimate comfort by being in relationship, in union with God. And on the cross, he's saying, I'm giving up my comfort so that you can have his comfort. I'm giving up my security so that you can have ultimate security. I'm giving up, I'm taking on the suffering. I'm taking on the ultimate suffering. Why? So that you would never, even when you suffer, you would never have the ultimate suffering of being completely dissociated with God. You can have relationship. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up the ultimate wealth for our sakes. An ambitious man, A rich man, a wealthy man gave up all of his wealth, gave up all of his riches. Why? So that we would have ultimate wealth, ultimate riches. So we could have everything we need. To the extent that you believe this, you can sacrifice. Only to the extent that you believe in the gospel, that it is personal and for you, will you be able to be generous. You say, I don't have a lot. Everybody says they don't have a lot. You say, I don't have enough. I just need a little bit more. Friends, That is looking up at the garden. If I can just have this much more. Jesus gave it up, sacrificed it. Jesus lost everything he can see when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, God is my everything. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my approval. I've lost my security. I've lost my identity. I've lost my worth. He gave up everything he can see so that you could climb the high place. When you climb Calvary, you can see everything is gained. All your loss as gain. Are you having trouble with failure? Are you having trouble with experiencing tremendous loss? Every day, we are experiencing loss because the world is broken. If you look right outside these windows, you see a broken city, a broken town. It's people experiencing loss every day, more than they gain. Every day, we struggle to gain. That's our lives. Struggling to expand our financial portfolios, Struggling to expand our family portfolios, our land, our our worth, our measure of worth. And we struggle with failure every day. We're quarreling with people constantly because they don't respect us enough, because they're not giving to us what we want, what we desire. Are you weary? Are you fatigued? Are you tired because of that? Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. You know, when you read scripture, when you pray, you know what you're doing? You're being taken up to a high place. So you can hear God reiterate his promise to Abram, to you. That promise is for you. Fulfilled in Christ. Fulfilled in Christ. He sacrificed all. That's what you see when you look at the cross. So you can have all. Will you remember that? Will you remember that this week as we head back into work, go back to our families? Will you remember that? Trust in the grace of God. Put your success and your failure into the grace of God. Take it up to the high place in Calvary and see Jesus surrendering all for you. Let's pray.